1: Hello everyone and uh, welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I am delighted to talk again to Dr David Solomon Jalagel. You are most welcome back, sir. It's a pleasure
2: to be here again. It's always a
1: pleasure. Well, uh, for those who don't know, Dr David Jalagel is a researcher with the Prince Sultan Research Institute at King Saud University in Saudi Arabia. He holds a phd in arabic and islamic studies from the university of the western cape formerly he was a lecturer in islamic theology and legal theory at the daralum in cape towns of africa where he graduated and then received the highest specialization in islamic law and the highest specialization in arabic david will be speaking today about presuppositions about god's wisdom in Muslim arguments for and against evolution. Uh, This is actually a really important subject, uh, and uh, I think it's really worth attending to. So, David, would
2: you like to introduce us to this subject? Yes, thank you very much. As you said, my topic is presumptions about God's wisdom and arguments for and against evolution. We're not going to be exploring evolution itself today or whether Islam accepts it or not. We're going to focus on one strategy that is being used by people on both sides to argue for or against evolution in an Islamic context Mm. and to explore from a traditional Islamic understanding of wisdom how valid this kind of argumentation is. So that is our focus here. So we first have to situate the topic. What are these wisdom-based arguments and how do they fit into the broader concept of Islamic theology and Islamic belief? Mm. So we can look, there are three kinds of questions that Islamic theologians can ask. The first kind of question is, what is God capable of and what is he incapable of? What can he do and what can't he do as God? Then you have the questions on the bottom, what did God do and what didn't he do? What, we know what he's capable of, but what did he actually do? And then the third kind of question is, what would God do, being God? And what would he stay away from because he is God? So those are the three kinds of questions that can be asked about God. And they fit into different aspects of theology. The first set of questions, what is God capable of and what he is incapable of, focus mainly on God's essence, how we understand who God is and his nature. How someone would ask, wait a minute. What do you mean by what is God incapable of? How can you even ask such a question? And you would answer, well, is God capable of not existing? Can he decide not to exist? Oh, oh, oh,
1: my favorite example in Christianity, I'm not, we're not talking about that at all, but uh, uh, Christians sometimes say, accuse Muslims of limiting God uh, in, in, when Christians deny Muslims deny that Jesus is God. So I say to them, can God become Satan? And I actually asked a Christian this yesterday, and they immediately changed the subject. So uh, can God not only be capable of his non-existence, but can God be capable of becoming Satan, e- pure evil? And that question was, uh, avoided uh, immediately by the Christian. I'm not making a polemical point. I'm just giving another example of what of this question that you've just mentioned.
2: Yes. And with regard to Jesus as well, if Jesus is a physical body and form, a Muslim would say, How can God become a body and form that is created and exists in creation? How mm. can the creator become the created thing? Yeah. God can create anything he likes, he can do anything he wants to do, but being created is not what a creator is. So these kind of things are explored with regard to God's essence. And so those kind of questions, we're not going to be dealing with them too much today. We're going to touch upon it in situating the question. Uh, the second set of questions deal with God's actions. Once we determine what God can do and what he cannot do, well, in the realm of what he can do, what did he actually do? And, of course, if you say God can do X or he can stay away from doing X, how do you know whether he did X or not? You need scripture for that. So mm-hmm. those are purely scriptural questions. But then you have a third set of questions. What would God do? We're saying because he is God, doesn't that dictate how we should behave? God should behave like God. So this is a kind of argument that would be brought. What is it that's suitable for God to do, being God? Not what he has power to do. What would he do? Mm-hmm. And this set of questions is a third possible set of questions that could be asked. So when we situate the question, we're going to see where these wisdom-based arguments fit into the three possible kinds of questions that can be asked. So let's look at the first question. What is God capable of, and what is he incapable of? Well, first we have to decide, because this deals with God's essence, we have to define God against everything else. And theologians define the universe as everything else besides God. Now, we, I quote it al-Razi, but all Sunni theologians give this definition, whether they're Asharite, madridite or Salafite, doesn't matter what school of Sunni theology they come from. You have God in his creation. That's absolute transcendence. God is not manifest in creation. Creation is not part of God. So pantheism and panentheism and things like that, those kinds of doctrines that put God, that put creation within the essence of God, Islam rejects that, at least within the uh, Sunni paradigms. It rejects such ideas. God is completely separate and distinct from his creation, and everything else besides him is his creation. So there's only God and his creation. So, that, so, and to define theology as a domain with respect to this concept, we have, I'm quoting Sanu, uh, Yusuf as Sanusi, who was a, a late Asherite theologian. He says: every accountable person, must know what is necessary impossible and possible for our Lord and they likewise must know the same about the messenger so we frame theology as knowing what is necessary what God what God is capable of what is impossible what is impossible for God what he's incapable of and then everything else is what is possible for God so what is he capable of incapable of and what is possible and so what is necessary so that is the way it's framed within many uh, Sunni theological books and, and discourses. An important verse for this topic is this one here. God creates what he pleases. Indeed, God is capable of all things. And I'm going to go over this in brief here. Uh, what is possible for God? Theologians say he has power to do everything whatsoever, as long as we don't determine that thing is a logical impossibility. And I'll go into what that means uh, very soon. But as long as we're not going to determine something as a logical impossibility, nonsense, for instance, then God is capable of all things. There's no exception to what he's capable of. And this verse says God is a creator of all things, and he is maintaining all things. This means everything else besides God himself, as we have already said, is his creation. So how would this, we're going to discuss uh, biological evolution. What would the argument for biological evolution be solely within the, within the framework of this kind of question the question would be does god have the power to bring about the diverse species on earth through a gradual process of divergence and change which is evolution or is he incapable of doing so what is god capable of what is he incapable of is he capable of doing evolution or manifesting that as a pattern in the world or is it something he is incapable of now within sunni theology if we say that god is all-powerful and does what he pleases They would have to all agree that he is capable of doing it. It doesn't have anything to do with whether he did or not, just the capacity has to be there. Because it is not one of the logical impossibilities. What is a logical impossibility? Some people would say, how could you say anything is out of God's power? But we must understand, logical or rational impossibilities all are nonsense. All statements of rational impossibilities can be reduced to a nonsensical statement. Al-Ghazali says this himself, he's a major theologian in uh, Sunni theology, he says, what is not reduced to this, what is not reduced to nonsense, is not impossible. And what is not impossible is within the divine power. So absolute omnipotence is, a, is held by Sunni theologians. When it comes to what God is capable of, he is capable of everything. A square circle is not part of everything. Why? What is a square? An object with four angles, for instance, just to give it a basic definition. And a circle has zero angles. Now, in language, we can construct the sentence. This is a square circle. Why can we say square circle? Because the word square can be used as an adjective, like red, red book. Red is an adjective, book is a noun. I can use square as an adjective, a square book. I can use circle as a noun. So grammatically, I can put the words together, square circle but it's absolute nonsense. How can it be a four-angle, zero-angle object? The fact that my language can allow me to construct these sentences isn't limiting God's power. It's just that I can construct verbal garbage. The words fit together grammatically, but they don't actually mean anything. So basically, when they say the, the rational impossibility is not allowed for God, they really mean God is, in, is actually capable of all things. And a perfect example of how people use logical impossibilities to confuse religious people is the old silly argument that says God cannot be omnipotent, logically. And you say, how? And they ask the famous question, can God create a rock that he cannot lift? And so if you, whichever way you answer it, they will give you a problematic uh, reply. If you say, yes, God can create anything, they say, if he can create a go- rock he cannot lift, then there is something that God cannot lift. They say, well, no, 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 he can't create that. Well, then there's something God can't create. So either way, he's not omnipotent. But you must understand that a rock is just an object, and lifting is just putting the object in one place or another, right? So basically, the question they're really asking, using the word rock and lifting as substitutes to confuse us, is, is God capable of being incapable? Now you see it's a contradiction in terms. So it's nonsense. Yeah, and they say if you say he is capable of being incapable, then he's incapable of something because you said he's capable of being incapable, and if you say he's not incapable, he's not capable of being incapable. Then there's something he's not capable of. He's not capable of being incapable. So you realize it's a contradiction in terms. It's, it's, a, non- nonsense it's a nonsense argument. question. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a, so trick. Can... it's a trick question. I've noticed that often uh, tricks people, uh, but it is actually a, a nonsense question. It is the very structure of the question is absurd.
2: Yep. Yes, exactly. So those are the things we mean by rational impossibilities. So then we need to talk about how God interacts with the universe within this model. If God is capable of all things and we see that the world has causation, processes are happening in the world, which is what science looks at, the natural processes, how they relate to each other. We can see there are three different divine action models. Now, I've gone into detail about this in another presentation I've given on blogging theology, yeah. specifically about this. But just to contextualize the present discussion, we can see there are three different positions that have been held by three different schools of Sunni theology. The first one is occasionalism, which is held by the what's known as the Asharite school, and also later Maturidites, uh, Muslim uh, scholars as well. That's where God creates the object that is the cause, the object that is the effect, and he creates the effect at the same time. So he creates cotton and he creates fire. And whenever he puts, creates the two together, God of his, just decides on his own to create ash in place of some of the cotton. And so we see the causal relationship in the world, but with God, it's, he creates ash on the occasion of fire contacting the cotton. So he creates everything directly. Nothing has innate metaphysical potency. On the metaphysical level, it doesn't have potency. Concurrentism is an early Maturidite position discussed by Ramon Harvey, and I've discussed that also in my other presentation. The object that is the cause directly brings about the effect, with God compelling it at the time of action. So he creates by compelling potency already inherent in the created substance. Instrumentalism is Ibn Taymiyyah's position, which is part of the Selefite School of Theology. That's where God creates causal power in one object, receptivity in the other, and brings about the consequent effect immediately at the time of action. So God creates through potency, he directly manifests in his creative substance. These are different ways of accounting for two, thing, two things. One, that God is maximally active, that he creates everything. Everything is creation, and that everything else depends on him. Nothing else is completely autonomous. Nothing else has autonomy. So the, what I wrote in yellow is actually what's more important. That's the basic belief, the basic belief of Sunni Muslims, and what is in white above that are different ways of navigating and accounting for this. The point of agreement here is very significant for contextualizing our question of evolution. Many anti-evolution arguments that we hear, people say evolution is false or it goes against religion, many arguments they give focus on the idea that evolution undermines God's creativity by assuming natural causes in the development of the species. Likewise, they object to the way the theory gives chance a dynamic role in the evolutionary process. This permits God the power to impose whatever causal pathway he wishes. These divine action models that we see do not allow for such arguments. Those arguments would be considered invalid because God is the creator of the cause and effect. He is the one who brings about the causal relationship If you see something as random or in the world and say this random aspect has something to do with it, well, God brought that about as well, and it's by his strict determination. Even though we perceive it as random, everything is happening by God's determination. So it allows God to manifest patterns that he wishes to manifest for us. We might perceive it as chance. We might perceive it as cause and effect, but everything is by God's determination. But this is a type of argument that is used. This is not the type of argument I'm going to be discussing tonight. These are not wisdom-based arguments. The arguments that say that evolution has to be false because it gives causality to nature are more metaphysical arguments, and I would say within the Sunni, uh, strict Sunni context, those metaphysical arguments don't have much strength because um, Muslims give full metaphysical power to God under any case, no matter what is manifest in the world. Mm. Can I can I just so uh, I uh, uh,
1: the- add a quick point about um, there's a, a a scientist and theologian, uh, Professor John Polkinghorne. Uh, Professor of Mathematical Physics at Cambridge University, is also an Anglican priest as well. Um, He argued, in distinction to what you're proposing, that at the quantum level, as a mathematical physicist, um, that uh, there is this randomness, as he calls it, and he believes that God has... Um, given freedom to that aspect, that part of the created order, basically to do its own thing, it's separate from God's uh, causing anything. So he sees a kind of an epistemological, an ontological difference there. Whereas in the Sunni position and the three divine models, everything uh, is is uh, God, as you say, is maximally active. Uh, in everything, and there isn't this realm where God is not directly causing events, whichever divine model you use. And that, I think that is a real big difference between a lot of Christian theology and a lot of Sunni theology on God's action in the world.
2: Yes, definitely. So even if we observe quantum uncertainty,
3: mm.
2: I'm not saying it's not there. What I'm saying, but from the metaphysical side of it, yeah. because science studies the natural relationships. If there is randomness and uncertainty in the natural relationship, that's what the scientists are studying. How things in nature relate to, how do photons relate to uh, to the quantum gates, for instance? What is the relationship? We observe it. What these divine action models are trying to look at is how God relates to the event. And from a Sunni perspective, it is God decides everything. Whether the photon goes left or goes right, that's God's action.
1: That's very distinctive. That's a very distinctive model yeah. of divine action. I think in in religious in the religious discourse. Yeah. Thank Yes, you.
2: and these, you see, even though there are three different models, they are very similar in their yeah. final outcome. Yeah. Excellent point. So we finish with what God is capable and what is incapable of, and we can safely say that metaphysically, within a Sunni perspective, metaphysical questions are not going to have much relevance to the theory of evolution being true or false, because it may be true, it may be false. But whether God is capable of bringing about that pattern in nature that we would observe, well, God is capable of it. And there would be no dispute there that God is capable of bringing about any pattern over time or unfolding any set of events over time that he wishes, And so that would not be the type of argument we're discussing tonight, and it's also not one that Muslims would find very compelling, regardless of whether they accept evolution or reject it. They wouldn't find those kind of metaphysical arguments compelling, at least not within the Sunni paradigm. There are other uh, paradigms that exist as well that might have a different outcome. So the second set of questions that we talked about, the second possible set of questions, is what God did do and what didn't he do? What did he actually do? For example, did he do evolution? Did he let animals evolve? Did he, how did God go about it? Okay, so we've already determined that God can do all things. So this is now the next question. Of course, we can say everything we observe in the universe is something that God did. If you go outside and you see a tree in your backyard, we know, did God create a tree in the backyard? Yes. We don't need to go to scripture for that. That's observed. A direct that we believe in directly observed evidence. The like Quran tells us, look and see. The signs in nature. So obviously what we see in nature is real. It's not an illusion. So when you see a tree in your backyard, you can say with confidence God created the tree. It's not a theological position. It's not a position of religious belief, but it's something you can believe is truth. This is known as a scene, as shahada in, in Arabic, as a scene. However, God can also do things. He is capable of doing things that we do not observe. He does not have to make everything subject to our observation. He can conceal some of those things from us, like the angels or the existence of heaven and hell at present, or events of the past that don't leave traces in history or in archaeology or in fossils. We can't talk about them because we don't know anything about them. They're lost to the past. What will happen tomorrow or in the future? We don't know. These are all things that are collectively known as the unseen, our ghaib. And you know, in the Quran, it says that the believer is one who believes in the seen and the unseen. Yeah, the Quran says that. Right, right at the right so at the beginning of right at the beginning of
1: the quran itself after surah al-fatiha you get this amazing say you, who are you know this book is for those who believe in the unseen um it's it's directing yeah sorry
2: yes within the very first few verses of the quran yeah. you're right right after the Fatiha, in the very first few verses of surah al Baqarah, you have that verse so such questions if they're not subject to our observation directly or indirectly such questions can only be answered by scripture if reason says God is capable of doing it, he's capable of putting a tree in your backyard, and you haven't seen your backyard, and you're not going to get to see it. And if you, the only way you can know for sure what's in your backyard, because God could do it either way, is if God says in the Quran, I put a tree there. Then you have to believe it. If he says, I didn't do it, you have to reject it. And if he is silent about it until you get empirical data, you have no knowledge about it. And if it's part of the unseen, you can never know about it. And, of course, I have with Blogging Theology a separate uh, program that are two hours long that deals specifically with the topic of what to do for these kind of questions. It's called Theological Hermeneutics. How do you interpret the Quran and Sunnah in order to derive theological, theologically binding doctrine, matters of belief? So those who are interested can visit that uh Please program. do. So it's, uh, please, it's a, so super, a superb program. Third, do watch it. We're going to be investigating the third set of questions what God would do and what wouldn't He do. So, this is what we're saying. We're not saying whether God is capable of something or not. We're not saying what the Quran said He did or didn't do. We're saying, in the absence of all of that, can we still say something about what God did and didn't do? Because because he is God, because we understand God to be a certain way. And this is your wisdom-based arguments. Wisdom-based arguments seek to establish a theological position on a matter based on what God would or would not do in his creation. Therefore, wisdom-based arguments posit that God's wisdom dictates a particular course of action. God would only do it a certain way. Despite his omnipotence making him capable of alternatives, you're saying, look, I admit that God is capable of doing it a different way. He has the power to do it. And I look at the scripture and it doesn't say anything about it. But I still know the answer. How? Because he's God. And God wouldn't do it that way. Or he would have to do it that way because he's wise, because he's perfect, because he's merciful. This is why these questions relate to his, Allah's attributes, so or the attributes of God more than anything else. Not necessarily the attribute of power and will, because those are very much connected to his creative act in his essence. The other attributes, when you say God is merciful, God is wise, God is perfect, whatever other attributes we're going to attribute to God, you say these define his behavior or how he's going to act. And from these, we know things about God, even if it's not explicitly stated in the Quran. And even if it's not, even if we know God has a power to do it some other way, this is when people argue in that style, that style of argumentation is the wisdom based argument style. Mm. And we're going to explore wisdom within a Sunni uh, paradigm to see what type of arguments of this nature are valid and what type are invalid. And we're also going to explore arguments for or against evolution that have been really proposed by people in the present day on that basis of that kind of argumentation. So importantly, before we go into critiquing the arguments that are being suggested in this capacity, to know what divine wisdom is according to the three Sunni theological schools. So how is wisdom defined by the three Sunni theological schools? Well, I have a few thinkers here. The first thinker I'm mentioning is al-Ghazali. He's an Asharite, a very famous Asharite theologian. He says, knowledge of the order of affairs, and the capability to arrange them. That is how he defines wisdom, how he understands God's wisdom to be. So to him, it's an attribute of God's action. Wisdom is an attribute of the action that he carries out. You notice wisdom is not defined externally to God. Like wisdom is out there, Mm. and we we define God's wisdom by an external standard of wisdom. There's a standard of wisdom we understand, and we apply it to God. No, this standard of wisdom emanates from God's action. So it's not external to God's action. It is his action actualizes the wisdom. It's not the other way around. That's very important because the Asherites like to emphasize more than anything else. Asherites want to emphasize God's free will. They're extremely important in their theological school more than it is to any other Sunni theological school. So wisdom cannot be an external factor or criterion that has any influence over God's action. God's actions are wise, but, it's manifested by the, but, it's, but wisdom is manifested by the action. Al-Imam al-Maturidi, the founder of the Maturidi school, says, defines wisdom as correctness by placing everything in its proper place. So to Al-Imam al-Maturidi, wisdom is an attribute of God's essence, just like his power and his will and his knowledge. Wisdom is an attribute of essence. The correctness by placing everything in its proper place is an essential attribute to God for him. For Anesophi, who was a later Maturidite, he defines it as an action having a laudatory outcome. So he's looking at the, again, it's similar to the Asherite tradition in that it deals with actions. But in this case, it's the outcome of the action that is where you see the wisdom, not in the fact that God is acting. But the outcome of the action, it, to him, is a tribute of God's essence in the sense that there is a standard of wisdom. The action, isn't the, one, is, the action isn't defining the wisdom. The wisdom more or less is defining the action. The action has to have a laudatory outcome. So you're dealing more of an external standard of wisdom here, and God, by, by his necessary being, by the way he is, brings about this kind of action. So it's very distinct. Uh, from the Asherite model, where it's because God acted it that it's wise. The the wisdom emerges from the action. Now wisdom here is defining what kind of action it will be. Ibn al-Qayyim, who's a Salafite theologian and a student of Ibn Taymiyyah, defines wisdom as doing what is appropriate, in the appropriate manner at the appropriate time. And to him, it's an attribute of God's perfection. Within Salafite theology, they emphasize God's perfection more than anything else. Hmm. And perfection relates to wisdom, which relates to the actions, And we will discuss that as we go along, as we look at each school in more detail. The first school, again, the Asherite school, in more detail, we'll look at God's will. What does it mean for God to have will? Will is, specifies what God wants from the various possibilities. God can choose to create X, or he can say, I'm not creating X. He can create a rabbit or not create a rabbit, for instance. So the will specifies what God wants from the various possibilities. Does he want to do this or do that, or do this or not do this? The specification, therefore, is a function carried out by the attribute of will. What does it mean for God to have will? It means that he has this function of specifying what he is going to do and what he's not going to do, and that is his free will. What is God's wisdom? The manifestation of God's actions in the world. When God acts, the pattern that emerges from his actions is wisdom. So God freely chooses to act according to the dictates of his wisdom. Everything is defined by God's own standards. God defines what is wise by his actions. So it's absolute free will. That is a hallmark, of course, of Asherite theology. In Maturidism, so in Asherite theology, I describe it as it is God's will to do what is wise. In Maturidism, we would say God's wise purposes determine his will. God's will, again, is the exact same definition, specifies what God wants from the various possibilities. We've already gone into what that means. Specification is carried out by God's divine purposes. It's God's divine purposes that specify what is going to be his will. God's wisdom is the attribute that guides and delimits those purposes, delimits those will. So according to Matt 3, it's inconceivable for God to do anything except what is wise. Because wisdom is an attribute of God. It's part of what God is. So God will only manifest wise actions because he is wise. Within Salafism, we say God's wisdom enables his will. They don't see will as having, it cannot operate without wisdom. It has no meaning of its own without wisdom. God's will, again, they agree on this, specifies what God wants from the various possibilities. But specification doesn't happen on its own. It requires a factor to make one possibility preferable to another. How? If the will determines I'm going to do X and not Y, on what basis am I making that determination? There must be a a, a factor that does that. God's wisdom is the attribute that distinguishes what is best and most appropriate. On what basis? Because it's more perfect. God's perfection demands that God only acts wisely. Without wisdom, will is impossible. Ibn Taymiyyad al would argue, since no option could be distinguished from the other. There is no way to say this is what God wants to do unless there is a, a attribute of wisdom to inform that decision. So these are three different ways of understanding wisdom, its definition, and three different ways of understanding how wisdom relates to God's will and his actions. So now we're going to ask more th- broader questions on the basis of these three schools of theology. What does the world teach us about God and his wisdom? When we look at the world, what can we learn about God and his wisdom? Which well, is important because science looks at the world to determine what's happening in the world. So we have to see this relationship. What does the universe tell us about God? Where do, how do we get from worldly knowledge knowledge of God. That's a direction. The flow of information is one direction. We look at the world, and we arrive at something we some knowledge about God. I say this is the Kalam tradition, which includes the Asherites and Maturidites, those two schools. And you've probably heard of the Kalam cosmological argument. Well, here's one version of that. All things in the universe are by nature contingent, which means their existence and non-existence are both possible. We can see that anything that could be other than the way it is is necessarily contingent. It does not have to be that way, so it doesn't have to exist at all. The second premise is all contingent things need a determining factor. Again, you've heard that determining factor regarding God's will again. To determine their existence over their non-existence. That determining factor must ultimately be necessary and utterly independent of God. Why? Because if that determining factor, you say, well, yes, the color of the box is green, but it was determined by the painter. Well, who determined the painter? Well, the painter, well, has mommy and daddy determined the painter. Well, who determined the mommy and daddy? And you go back and you go back and you go back. You have to ultimately say there has to be some existence. Something must exist that, does, that is not contingent. Something must exist that is necessary. That doesn't have the qualities of contingency. It isn't bigger or smaller, greener or whiter, whatever it is. It is something absolutely necessary and completely distinct and different than all the created existence we see, because it is not a possibility and it doesn't contain possibility, it is necessity. So, you're, you're saying that, you know,
1: so just to clarify, you're saying that science, as scientists, only investigate contingent things, things whose existence or non existence are both possible. Science, as science, does not uh, examine, investigate, discuss, or is even aware of, perhaps necessary and independent reality, i.e. God, the absolute. So it's strictly limited to a particular horizon of, of discourse to do with the contingent. Is that, would, that, would that be fair there enough?
2: might be some people like Richard Dawkins who would argue against that, but you are right. In reality, yeah. that's all they're capable of. Science yeah. is impotent. is impotent to discuss anything else because science only looks at the observable world. It only looks at natural cause and effect, the changing world around us. And because it limits itself in its practice to that domain, it cannot investigate these things. Some scientists get a bit uppity and think they can, but they're making a mistake. Yes. They're going into what's called ontological naturalism, a philosophical school which rejects metaphysics by uh, by assuming certain metaphysical positions, ironically.
1: Uh, because they can't so use they science to prove that, because it is, by definition, something that is beyond
2: empirical observation. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yes. So science cannot do that With its own, within its own parameters. It's incapable of doing that. So this is now you see a green spot behind the um, Ooh, picture. Yes, why did David? David key, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Why did David Georgeau put a green spot back there Indeed. to show how simple this argument actually is? This particular argument does not require complexity. It doesn't require a complex world. If you can imagine that your mind is out there. And the entire universe is that green spot. That green spot is sufficient to prove that God exists. How? Does it have to be there? No. Does it have to be green? No. Does it have to be round? No. Does it have to have the brightness that it has? No. Could it be a different color? Yes. Could it be brighter or darker? But there's so many different ways you could argue that it didn't have to be there or have to be the way it is which means the green spot is screaming out, I am contingent. <laughs> so I require something else to bring me about. Now that something else is either going to be contingent or necessary. So ultimately, this will bring you to go. And within the clamp Cos argument is considered so simple and easy to achieve that a child who has reached the age of discretion, child who can think ration, not yet in puberty, is able and is expected to be able to carry the cell, even if its parents are atheists. Now, whether they will be held accountable for that and be punished in the hereafter before they reach puberty is a discussion that actually Sunni Muslims have had. Abu Hanifa and the Hanafis and the Asharis and the Salafis, they debate that issue. But the idea that they should be able to achieve this level of reasoning well before puberty is, is agreed upon. It's a very simple argument. And I believe you have Hamza Karamali did a whole presentation on blogging theology.
1: He did. And uh, I'm very pleased to say he's coming back to do further programs on, on this and other related matters. And what you're saying and what he's saying
2: overlap considerably, actually. That's very good. Very interesting. Look forward to seeing his other programs. Now, that is from the Kalam perspective. Now, the Sufis have a slightly different way of looking at things. They argue a child is born without knowing God but with an innate tendency, fitra, towards God. Mm-hmm. That's not knowledge of God. A baby, if you could give a baby the ability to talk or, or read its brainwaves, it will not have a concept of, a fully formed concept of God, if no. but it has an innate longing. This innate longing, Ibn Taymiyyah describes it as its innate longing for its mother's milk. It doesn't have to be taught that. It has, but It's just like it has that there's a need to love God. So love of God comes for Imitania before knowledge of God. Mm. A very interesting way of looking at things. That innate longing towards God is there. So as a mind matures, the need to love God leads to knowledge of God without the need for any kind of proof at all. He mm. does say you will be seeing it in the signs of nature. As a child looks around and sees the world around the child, it'll recognize without even having to Think too hard, because of that innate nature, it'll pull the child to the conclusion that this world is created by God. So there is no need to any kind of formal reason. Hmm. And so for him, in time you know, the different main difference is how early it happens. For him, it just develops like something that slowly comes into focus and develops very much earlier. I don't. He doesn't give a year. Nobody can give a year. Every child no. is different. But for for Matris and, and Asheris, it'll, it'll guess around maybe six, seven, or eight, depending on the child. Primentania it's going to happen much earlier than that, maybe for the child to even discuss it or express it, that the awareness will emerge in the child's mind. Mm. So it's going to happen much earlier within his uh, within his understanding.
1: And this, by the way, has been empirically investigated by researchers at Oxford, I think at Harvard as well, in recent uh, research. And this has been shown to be empirically, universally the case throughout our species. This is not a, whether or not the, the parents of a household is secular or atheist or Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim Christian. Yeah. there is a universal uh, in- innate tendency towards God or towards the transcendent that has been observed. And, and the conclusion is, uh, by the eminent people at Oxford, that this is innate in our species. It, so it is. So uh, Ibn Taymiyyah has been proven right by recent scientific research.
2: Yeah. And I think the ashries and Maturides would say we're proving us right too. We're just talking about uh, exactly the me- how it actually happens and is a little bit different. But yeah, they both all basically agree that a child will reach this. Yes.
3: Yeah, it in the but crop. yeah, it
2: looks like Ibn Taymiyyah has an advantage with regard to the current research that's being done. Mm. It looks like it more supports uh way of looking at things that there is something very, there is a drive at least mm. somehow in the way our brain functions that brings yes. us there very quickly. Absolutely. And now, so here we have, does that mean, is that everything? Because as you know, the cl- that doesn't give us all the knowledge we want of God. To know that there's a necessary being that has a power and will and knowledge to create. Because knowledge, of course, has to be there in order to make determinations. And will has to be there in order to decide. And power has to be there. Otherwise, there'd be no objective power. Mm. But we see, we understand God to be more than just that very abstract and very simple understanding. There's more to it. And the Kalam cosmological argument, even the fitra argument, doesn't get you all the way there. No. So there is also a role for, another role for the universe. And from the Kalam tradition, you see the universe is a current. It has a beginning, for instance, or changes over time. It's temporal and it's contingent. It's not necessary. That shows that God exists, the necessary being. But then once we know the necessary being exists, then we see that the universe is complex, orderly, balanced, and harmonized. We see these processes and these Uh, aspects and qualities of the universe we observe. And that lets us know that God is wise. So the universe itself tells us God is wise. You don't have to look in the Quran and say, Is God wise? Let me look. God says He's wise. No, you don't need to go that far. God's wisdom emerges also from looking at nature. But it's a different type of argumentation. Once you have God's existence firmly in your mind from your fitra or from your intellectual proof, however it, it happens then you see that nature has certain qualities. It's complex, it's ordered, it's balanced, it's harmonized. We see purposiveness in the universe. We see that purposiveness. We know it's created. It's created and that purposiveness, means the creator manifests purposiveness in his creation. It's orderly. It has a creator, that creator manifests the order, because he, he's the one who did it. So then we can see that God is wise, God is perfection, God is merciful. Many other attributes we can see, coming through from this way of looking at it. So nature does inform us. It doesn't just inform us that he exists. It informs us of many of God's qualities that we can see as well. And from the Kalam perspective, you see you have the Kalam cosmological argument manifests the existence and the nature and orderliness of the universe manifest his wisdom and other attributes. The Sellafite position is extremely similar but slightly different because of the role of fitra, that human innate longing drives us to knowledge of God in our childhood. So we know we exist. Then when we get older and we are more mature, we can observe the universe and contemplate the science of God in the universe even more. And by contemplating the science of God in the universe, we see that the universe is complex, orderly balanced and harmonized. And in the same way, we arrive at God is wise. The only difference between the Salafite and Kalam uh, version is how we arrive at God's existence in the first place. It's slightly different. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Now now we're going to look at the three different schools and see, can we go in the opposite direction? Can we make the flow of information go in the other way? If I start off saying God is wise, can I sit there without anything else and say certain things about the way the world is? That from knowing that God is wise, once I've arrived at the knowledge of God's wisdom, that I can say that this means that I can predict certain things about the nature of the world from that premise with an Asherite uh, definition of wisdom being it's, it's embodied in God's actions, as you said. God's manifest wisdom through his actions. It is not dictate, it's not, his wisdom doesn't dictate his actions. His actions not, uh, basically dictate what is wisdom. So for them, no, it doesn't go the other direction. God's wisdom is known through his actions, not the other way around. What God has done is wise. And we can often discern the patterns in his wisdom by observing the world. And realizing that he's wise. But we will not be able to predict any details about the world solely from that premise. So we can learn from we can derive God's wisdom from seeing the world, but we cannot predict things about the world by accepting the fact that God is wise. Okay. From the Maturidite perspective, they say that the universe must exhibit order and precision. Since the universe because otherwise the universe would exist in vain, they say. Since the universe does not exist in vain, it's a deliberate action of God, and we know that God placed us here to worship him. He said he, he said he created us to worship him. The universe must, therefore, have a minimum level of coherence and precision for us to be able to come to know him and worship him. So a universe that's completely chaotic and incoherent would not fulfill the purpose of allowing us to exist, to have reason, to see the world, and come to acknowledge God's existence. And if our purpose is to worship God, then a wise God would have to create a universe where that is possible. It doesn't have to be our universe. It doesn't have to look like this. It doesn't have to have raining water and growing trees. It has to have a level of coherence so rational beings can be created in it that reflect upon God. So that, they would say, is something that wisdom can tell us has to be the case. It's something we observe in the universe anyway. It doesn't tell us anything we didn't get already, but it says his wisdom dictates that has to be part of the universe. So yes, could, the universe could have been different than it is, but that would have to be there. That a certain level of order and precision would have to be there in any possible world that God created for us. For the Selephites who focus on God's perfection, God's perfection would require a coherent creation, very similar to the mandatory position. Because God's wise and just, it requires a certain level of coherence in his action. Because he would have to be acting in a coherent and consistent manner. Yeah. So these are different, uh, because of different ways of looking at God's uh, wisdom, ways of defining wisdom, the three schools have a different understanding of how the flow of information could go the other way. They're very general. The uh, understandings they have are extremely general. But, they, but the Ashurites would say, no, we cannot take it the other direction. For Maturidites and Selephites, they can within these limits. What, none of, what they all agree on, now we say Sunni schools here, We can predict the universe must be precisely X, Y, and Z. Can we do something more specific? Can we predict specific details of our world based only on knowing God is wise? We say, God is wise, what can I say about the world and predict about the world strictly on the basis of knowing that God is wise? Now, they all agree this is you cannot do that by knowing God is wise, dictate specific details of what the world is and its nature and its events and happenings. And we'll quote different scholars, I will mention what different scholars of the three school, Sunni schools have said in this regard. Al-Ghazali says, the meaning of the wise is the knower of the reality of things, the capable of precision in making them accord precisely to his will. From this, where is the need of God considering best interest? God doesn't have vested interest. As for a wise man among us, He takes his best interests into consideration, looking out for himself to achieve distinction in the world and to achieve reward in the hereafter or to repel misfortune from himself. All of these things are impossible to conceive of for God. God has no needs, he's basically saying. And because God doesn't can do anything any way he wants to do it, uh, you can't predict specific things in nature and say, because God is wise, he has to do it this way. No, God is not dependent, he has no limitations or needs. So that type of argumentation would make no sense. And Imam al-Maturidi observes, if those sectarians, people of other sect scenes, gave consideration to what we have mentioned of proofs, they would have known their intellect's limited ability to know human wisdom. He's talking like philosophers and other sectarians that rely on reason a lot. Say If they look at their own proofs, they would see that even human wisdom is hard for humans to figure out. Let alone being able to comprehend the Lord's wisdom. So he very much emphasizes God's wisdom, but says you can't second guess God based on your understanding of that wisdom, basically, is what he's saying. Likewise, a later Maturidi scholar, Anesipi, says God has created an incalculable abundance of things from which no one in his creation derives benefit or gets to see or even examine, like the hidden regions of the earth, the interiors of the mountains, or the bottoms of the oceans. God is transcendent above taking benefit from anything. Nevertheless, he did not create those things in vain. So God has wisdom. He's saying God has wisdom in these things, even though we don't see it. We can't even imagine it. Now, the fact that Nesiphi's arguments are a bit outdated, because today we know that we can, we definitely have an understanding of the interiors of the mountains, and we are exploring the uh, composition of the center of the earth and see the function that the mantle and the poor have in allowing life to exist on earth, for instance. And we definitely know what's at the bottom of the oceans. We send submersibles down there. But the fact that his argument is dated, the examples he gives are outdated, proves his point. We now see many wisdoms and benefits in there, but he, in his time, could not see them. So limited human knowledge does not mean he's saying, just because we get no benefit out of the center of the mountain, the core of the earth, or the bottom of the sea, and we never even get to see those things, doesn't mean God created them in vain. Now, today we know better. We've proven his point. There are other things we don't know about, other things, so where does the wisdom in that? It can't be that way. But again, we should take lessons. We don't know. And that's what Nesipi's point is. We can't second guess God again. Ibn al Qayyim, a Salafate theologian, says comparing God's actions to the actions of his servants, that's you and me, is one of the falsest of analogies. Likewise, is comparing his wisdom to theirs or his attributes to theirs. It is acknowledged that the Lord knows that his servants will fall into unbelief, injustice, and wrongdoing. And he is capable of not creating them or creating them upon one heart to do what he loves and is pleased with. And he can prevent them from transgressing against each other. But his infinite wisdom keeps him from doing so and requires that he creates them the way they are. Now, you see, there's a linkage God's wisdom requires. That's a very Syllaphite way of talking okay, was Asherites would never use that phrase. But just because God's wisdom requires that he creates the world in a certain way, doesn't mean we can know the details of what that way is. Because we don't have access to that wisdom. We don't have that level of knowledge to make those determinations. Even though it's determined. Yes, exactly. So again, we can't second-guess God. Even though the Selephites would argue, would use that kind of language. Again, that, that God's wisdom requires that it's the way it is which is definitely interesting. That's a big distinction between Salafites and Ashurites. But still, you can't dictate to God what that wisdom is. Again, we would have to be God to be able to do that. So, and Ibn is another Salafi, reflects Nesafi's statement when he says, if God's wisdom is not evident to us, we can't see it in something. we see, that We can't imagine what it is. That does not mean God's wisdom is not there. Mm. Our ignorance of his wisdom does not negate its existence. Mm. Do we not see that though that though God's wisdom is hidden from us in the creation of snakes, scorpions, rats, and insect vermin, from which we know nothing but harm, this does not negate that God created them, nor does it mean that there is no wisdom in them that remains hidden, since the absence of knowledge does not equate to the knowledge of absence, a very good axiom to keep in our life. The absence of knowledge does not mean the knowledge of absence. Yeah, and so again, he's saying the same thing, and his examples are outdated. And the beauty well, of his examples yeah. being outdated mm-hmm. is that they and they prove his point. Today, no ecologist would say that uh, snakes, scorpions, rats, and insects have no function. Imagine <laughs> we'd be better off without insects, them.
1: If, if insects disappeared, our our, our ecology our ecosystem would cease to exist on Earth. It'd all be dead. Yes.
2: Yeah, so. yeah. This this kind of argument, I think every ecologist and um, naturalist is wincing when they heard, but here even even I wouldn't say this argument at all. But the fact that he couldn't see the, but he's saying I cannot see the wisdom in these nasty animals, <laughs> but that but I know that wisdom is there. So yeah. yes, his examples are outdated, and that only goes to prove his point
1: Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com
2: code PROGRAM. So this means that the flow of information from knowing God's wisdom to determining He's all mm-hmm. is either absent if you're an Asherite, there is no flow in that direction, or it's extremely limited to knowing that the universe has to be generally coherent and, cons- and, and and intelligible. But anything more than that, you're now second-guessing God. And that's agreed upon by all Sunni schools. God's wisdom and the question of efficiency. This is an argument that is not popular among Muslim creations or evolutionists. It's not really used by Muslim thinkers, but it's extremely popular in Christian literature with regard to evolution. They say is it that it's a wasteful way of doing things, for instance. Evolution is wasteful. Now, this deals with a problem of analogies. We've heard some of the people we've mentioned mention the false analogy,
3: yeah.
2: that wisdom-based arguments are very susceptible to false analogies, where we compare God to us, basically. When you're looking at an argument from efficiency, what do you argue? Let's look at an engineer, the top uh, picture here. Engineers must be efficient in their design to maximize their intended goals while utilizing the minimum amount of resources. Tasks must be completed to the fullest extent with the minimum of time, space, and energy expenditure. That's how you make a profit. I want to achieve my goal with the least expense, and that is called efficiency. Whether it's the expense of money or energy or capital or, or resources, I want to do this. This means what? Why would you care? You care because you have limited resources, limited power. You have wants that you cannot achieve unless you are prudent. Okay? Strange thing to compare God to, a one who creates whatever he pleases, has no limitations whatsoever, has no needs. So when a person uses an efficiency argument on God, they're actually arguing that God has to behave in the world like an engineer. But even with humans, it's not always the case. That's what's so amazing. Look at artists. Artists must be imaginative in their use of resources to bring about emotional impact and delight. Time, space, energy, expenditure, and effort can all be part of the creative experience and are intended as part of the outcome. Let's give a couple artistic examples.
3: Hmm.
2: A person makes a gigantic white canvas and puts a splatter of red across the middle of it. A very, whether you like the kind of art or not, it'll be a striking impact. What makes its, its size and excess, its plain white field, the big red splatter in the middle, the fact that it takes the entire side of the building to show it, is impactive. Some people would say it's a waste of the public taxpayers' money, <laughs> but it still has its impact. Mm. The part of that purpose of the impact is in the size and scale, not in its efficiency. Now, let us take a more conservative example. The opposite extreme is more conservative and acceptable within conservative circles, the Persian miniature. In the Muslim world, they used to make paintings the size of thumbnails sometimes. Wow. With such detail that the human eye cannot see the detail, but it has to be there. To expend that much effort to make these small details can barely be seen is part of the aesthetic itself. Is it practical? And this goal that cannot be achieved any. You the way to human needs, yes. So even humans are not always engineers. And even when they are not behaving like engineers, they're not behaving foolishly. They're not necessarily doing the wrong thing by not being efficient. Because the type of experience you want to achieve, the goal you have in the aesthetic realm is different. So that should make us humble before we try to apply either of these analogies to God. Mm. Because God as artist is used by some people. And people who see God as artist, you know, they have a different attitude about the way God behaves and, it's, and they have different expectations of God. You've noticed that. If you look at people that try to explain God that way, they have a different attitude about religion than those who would try to picture God as an engineer. But both, we would say, are false analogies. They're comparing God to us. Now let us look at an imaginary scientific explanation of this false analogy. Look, If you can look on the right side of the slide, you see a little tiny green and blue bowl. That's the Earth. That's You've right. seen it before in some earlier yeah. slides. Yes. And on the left side, you see this big orange and yellow bowl. That is the Sun. Let's look at some details about this. These are not, this is not a matter of scientific theory. This, these are all observed facts I'm going to give you. The Sun's dynam- diameter is about 109 times the diameter of the Earth. In order for the Earth to enjoy a climate conducive to life, the Earth averages 149.6 million kilometers away from its source of energy. The distance between the sun and the Earth is 107 times the diameter of the sun. The sun is 333,000 times more massive than the Earth. The sun consumes more than 4 million tons of fuel every second. The sun loses an additional 1.5 million tons of material to the solar wind. Over its lifetime, up to now, the sun has lost more than 100 times the mass of the earth. The earth receives between one and two billionths. That's one and two thousand millionths of the energy emitted by the sun. Very little, actually. And the other little specks of dust called other planets also get their share. A few more billions there now imagine a person who has the efficiency argument in their mind they are geocentrists. imagine you go back to the middle ages and you go to the geocentrist who believes that the sun is a little tiny bowl very hot and bright and it goes around the earth and you explain this to that geocentrist they would say that's the craziest thing I ever heard this is a ridiculous way to heat and light the earth to spin the earth around to make day and night So it has to spin around really fast, and then it goes around the sun like that, at that distance. It makes much more sense to have a small sun close to the Earth and go around the Earth, shedding its light and heat as it does so. It's much more efficient. What is this spinning Earth nonsense? This setup is wasteful, injudicious, and absurd. And I have seen in the literature the same exact argument being used against evolution. Needless to say, whether evolution is true or false, it may not be the argument you would want to use, simply because it has this defect in it, comparing God to an engineer. Humanity. Now, what's interesting is that Al-Ghazali, who's an Asherite, came up with this argument. He argues that... Our world is, in fact, the best possible world. Mm. And there has been a lot of discussion about what he means by that. Centuries of discussion. Western academia has published books on this and papers. As well as Muslims throughout the centuries have debated what he means by it. Because it seems like an Asherite wouldn't want to say this. A God is not obliged to do anything. So why would this world be the best possible world? And, but... It, Al-Ghazali says doesn't mean he's obligated to do it, but he did, because he is God. And he will to do what is wise, and he will to create this world, and we should take that on faith. He says we have to take it on faith, because how could we make that determination for ourselves? How do we know? What would it take to know that the world is best? Not take it on faith, but to know that this is the best possible world. Well, he gives a list of nine things, nine conditions that we would have to fulfill, and then we would know for sure without having to take it on faith, that this is the best possible world. Condition one, God created for us all the knowledge our souls could contain. God poured out upon them wisdom of indescribable extent. God gave each person the knowledge, wisdom, and intelligence of them all, so shared knowledge. God revealed to them the consequences of all things. God taught them the mysteries of the invisible world. God acquainted them with the subtleties of divine favor. God acquainted them with the mysteries of final punishments. God made them aware of all, all that is evil. God made them aware of what brings all benefit and what brings all harm. Because if you had this knowledge, you could you would determine without a doubt that this is the best possible world. Well, guess what? You don't have that. So guess what? You just have to take it on faith. So that's now that is again something that is something we know for sure because now they gave this list of conditions to know this for sure. Now exactly why He says that and insists upon it has been. A matter of scholarly debate for centuries. But obviously, we don't fulfill the conditions to make those determinations. This has importance for us in science, because if someone says that, uh, looks at a scientific theory, whatever that theory is, says that theory is unpleasant, or it looks crude, yeah. in the best possible world, that wouldn't be the case. Yeah. Uh, they would. That, that, that would not be a valid argument, because we can't determine what the criteria of that best possible world Although is. That,
1: that, is a, that is a criteria. I mentioned Professor John on before, Professor of Mathematical Physics at Cambridge. He talks about beauty and elegance being a key to truth in science. Mathematical elegance, mathematical beauty. The universe seems to have this intrinsic correspondence between beauty and elegance. Um, so it's, it's not a... It, and, and those qualities themselves... Uh, tend to be keys to the truth and accuracy of of a scientific thesis. Uh, It was quite remarkable when I first heard that.
2: That is remarkable, and it it also shows a flow of information. You can look at aspects of nature like that and realize that there is a God who is wise. But you would not look at a scientific theory and say, this specific theory isn't beautiful enough for me, so God wouldn't do it that way. It has to be false. You can't reverse it and say, I don't personally think it's beautiful. So, that scientific theory can't be nice because I don't like the world it's describing. No. And because God is perfect and God created the best possible world, that scientific model is not the best possible world, in my opinion. So, that scientist is talking crap. Mm. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm. Uh, Al would point out you, as an individual, do not get to set that criterion. Mm. You'd have to fulfill all nine of these positions, then you could talk like that. Until, you get, until you've achieved these nine, uh, Specific prerequisites, you don't get to talk like that. That's what he would say. So here is a glaring example, false analogy. Douglas Barbour mentions this in many places when yeah. science meets religion. No, this is not Douglas Barbour's argument. It's an argument he discusses.
1: Oh, I see. Because he, 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 he himself is a, um, a Christian, is uh, ordained in the Church of England, I think. So he's, yeah,
2: yeah. 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 And he's very active in the Islam and the Christianity and science, or science and religion discussion.
1: Mm.
2: He says, one argument against evolution is there seems to be too many blind alleys, species going extinct without getting anywhere. There are too many extinct species and too much suffering and waste in the world to attribute every event to God's specification. Now, no one's arguing that there isn't waste and suffering in the world. You can see that animals eating each other and dying in disease. It's out there. But they're saying you can. this cannot be the way God creates. This cannot be the creative process of God because that process is wasteful. Again, we've already discussed in detail why that is not the case and why we can't use that. It's a crass example of a false analogy. And it's not common among Muslim thinkers for that very reason. You know, for example, as Abu Ma'in and Nesafi of the adamat Theologian explains the falsehood of this analogy where he says, every agent in the observable world is subject to needs and necessities. If they, if worldly creatures, engage in what does not benefit them when they should be acquiring benefit and guarding off harm, then they are engaging what diverts them from acquiring benefit and averting harm. This is blameworthy behavior for them. It's called folly and decadence, for instance. We have words for it. This is blameworthy behavior for them since it is deficient and destructive it is foolish. If people do things that don't benefit them and cause them harm, it's foolish. We call that a foolish person. Mm. But God transcends such things. He doesn't have, but he can't be harmed. He cannot get benefit. So when he acts without securing benefit for himself, which he can never secure benefit for himself, it is not foolish. So you're saying that's a very false comparison to between human beings and God. So now we get to the uh, main point of our topic, arguments from wisdom that have been made in the present day, in the 20th, late 20th and early 21st century, for and against evolution. I'm going to give both kinds, and we're going to study these arguments on the basis of what has gone before, from a Sunni perspective. These arguments may make more sense from other perspectives, but specifically from a Sunni theological perspective on wisdom. How do these arguments stand up? So I'll begin with anti-evolution arguments. The first, oh, anti-evolution arguments. I went too far. What God would and would not do. The first argument I'm giving is if if natural purposeless causes are found to be sufficient to account for such things, people would have no reason to believe in God. The argument here is God would not create a universe that is causally closed the way the scientists expect it to be or assume it must be for their practice because God has to leave in reason for us to believe in him. Some things will have to go unexplained. That is the argument here that Harun Yahya uses. And we can read this in the muzaffar at Baal as well. The argument essentially means that God's wisdom dictates that he would not act in nature by giving every effect a cause. We're not saying God is incapable of doing so in these arguments. That would be a different type of argument altogether, that the universe by necessity has to have gaps because God's creative act would, not account, would, would mean that everything cannot be accounted for. We've discussed that in our previous discussion about, uh, where we discussed intelligent design arguments. In those ways, we're discussing them on a metaphysical level. This is more simple, saying God wouldn't do it that way. He would leave gaps. He'd leave them so we'd have faith. Now we see from the divine action models I discussed in the very beginning, with regard to what God can and cannot do, that this type of argumentation would not be very strong because if we understand that God's existence is so manifest in the causal process itself. For a Muslim, when they see cause and effect, they see God's action. Mm. They see order. They see contingency. Things don't have to be the way they are. They don't have to result the way they do. They don't have to be before and after each other. So everything points to God's existence, which would mean that even a neatly closed causal process shows God's existence and shows his wisdom. Indeed, on Ibn Tabia's model... The, very, the fact that God creates through natural causes and everything has a natural cause requires that all phenomena will be expected to have a cause. So it would really be problematic for him, this specific, particular argument. God's yeah. wisdom would mean God would have to leave some things without a cause. So we'd observe a lack of causation. No, that would make no sense to him. So this means if science demonstrates that something came about strictly through natural causes and can be totally accounted for by natural processes, All they have done is to map out for us, give us a map of the the processes of God's creative act, and that in no way imperils our faith. It should increase it. From a Sunni perspective, our faith is not weakened by him creating a gapless process. It is strengthened by the precision of that design, the design in the causal process. God's wisdom does not necessitate that he places causal gaps in the universe so we can latch on to those gaps and believe in him on that basis. So that argument is saying that God has to leave gaps for us to be able to be able to see It's comparing uh, the natural causation in its autonomy to God in his autonomy. Another question is, with Suleiman Yang argues, the Islamic view of human origins and man's favorite status in the universe does not square with a dominant scientific view of evolution, as argued by Charles Darwin and the scientific communities around the world. If one follows the logic of the evolutions, man appeared after a long process of transformation from lower forms to higher forms. Now, again, I don't believe Suleiman Yang is arguing that God could not, is not capable of creating human beings from lower forms to higher forms, as he says. He's arguing because God has honored us, that's not the way he would go about it. He's saying it would go against God's wisdom to create us in such a manner. How could he favor us and give us such base and ignoble origins? Now, this argument is problematic for a number of reasons. Why must God's wisdom dictate how he creates those he favors and how he confers his esteem and favor on them? It begs the question, isn't God's esteem enough? The argument assumes a false analogy that God's creative act must conform with subjective human notions of dignity and honor. It is not reasonable, maybe, for us as people to honor something that we bring from lowly sources. If I dig something out of the trash, I may not respect it very much. So we say it must follow for God as well. That's the basic argument. If God is going to honor us, he's not going to evolve us from disgusting other animals or whatever. But the Quran seems to say something else about this. The Quran says in Surah Al-Hijr, verse 28, God created man from altered black mud. And each one of us, in turn, is ascribed in the Quran, like in Surah Sajdah, verse 8, that we are created from a humble fluid, The sperm drop. That doesn't negate the dignity God said He's conferred upon us. Mm. Humble origins does not mean God cannot say He's honored us or holds us in esteem. And it also seems to be strangely the argument Satan uses. Yes. When he says, when he was told to bow down to Adam, he invoked his origins. And Adam's origin says, you created me from fire, and you created him from mud. Now, again, I'm not holding this stone upon Suleiman Yang. I'm just saying there's some logical fallacy in his argument. And just because something may have come from a lowly origin does not mean that God's wisdom would declare that God would not create something that way and then confer honor and distinction upon it. We're comparing God's actions again to how we would go about doing things when we want to honor them and we are not to be compared to God. Another anti-evolution argument is, the theory of evolution is repugnant to believers because it is totally in opposition to the good qualities required by God of his servants. It is a theory of progress that sets a premium on sex, greed, selfishness, and violence. In summary, this argument is basically saying that God's wisdom demands that he would only act in his creation in a way that exemplifies moral conduct, our moral conduct, how we should behave. That God, when he acts, he manifests in nature natural phenomena. The natural phenomena he manifests in nature should resemble how we should treat how we are expected as people to treat each other. That's the argument. This argument assumes that God's actions must serve as moral instruction. Basically, God would not create in a manner from which people might derive morally reprehensible lessons. God's actions, in this case, are being compared to our own. He would not bring about new species through a pattern in his actions, which is what evolution would be from a Muslim perspective, a pattern in God's actions. He would not do so in nature, where sexual prowess, other, others' misfortunes, and fierce competition among creatures would play a role in the unfolding of that pattern. Now, this is a very subjective uh, argument. It also seems incompatible with some verses of the Quran. For example, in Surat Nejim 43 to 45, God says, and it is he who causes to laugh and causes to weep. And it is he who causes death and causes life. And he created the pairs, male and female. So he links even our procreation to this patterns of misfortune and fortune in the world. Again, God says in Sword to Shorter, 49 through 50, to God belongs the dominion of the heavens and the earth. He creates what he wishes. He bestows females upon whom he wishes and bestows males upon whom he wishes. Or he gives them both males and females, and he renders whom he wishes childless. Indeed, he is knowing and capable. So God is saying he is the one who decides who has more offspring than anybody else. And not everybody gets the same thing. That is clear from the verse.
1: I'm just in in, in parenthesis, and and sorry, just in parenthesis here, and somewhat controversially, I I note that in in the the language used there in the English translation of the Quran, God speaks of male and female genders only. Um, There is no, uh, the the woke discourse uh, is, is, is absent, shall we say, from that description of our humanity as male and female. That polarity is quite clear.
2: But that's my parenthesis, comment. (laughs) Okay. See, definitely, no one can doubt there is such a thing as male and female from the Quran. It establishes both uh, concepts very nicely. This argument that we see here also assumes that God's actions in nature are required to resemble how humans are expected to behave towards one another. This is the most problematic point of this argument, in my opinion. This is a false comparison. Even though human moral duty may be intelligible to us, we know why murder is bad. And we know why saving a a child from drowning is good. We can understand that rationally, yes, to a greater or lesser extent. And different schools of thought disagree on how much that extent is. The actions of the creator are different. They're on a different uh, Hmm. order altogether than the actions of individual creatures living in this world. Come. Uh, there's a verse that says, he is not questioned about what he does, but they will be questioned. The Asherite theologian, Al-Baqilani, comments on this verse. And he says, it means that they will be asked about what they earn. And he will not be asked about what he creates.
3: Mm.
2: Because there is no one above him to command him. And there is no requirement upon him in what he creates. Mm. Rather, the command and the requirements are upon them and what they acquire. Likewise, Enesafi observes, he's a Matridi theologian, wisdom is possible in the creation of repugnant acts. So how can you claim that there is no wisdom? If they allege that if there had been wisdom in it, they would have understood that wisdom and identified it, then they are being arrogant and presumptuous in the extreme by making their limited intellects, that can only understand some aspects of human wisdom into a law governing divine wisdom. Very strong terms. Just because as we can say what is good, what God can tell us, even what is good and bad for us to do, doesn't mean that God, when He acts in nature, has to act according to those same limited rules. Or at least we have to understand and perceive them according to our limited rules. Mm-hmm. Selephite theologians distinguish between the legislative command and decree, which is a law that applies to creatures. So it's like the Ten Commandments, like do this, don't do that. When God commands us, that's a legislative command. And the legislative decree, this is lawful, this is forbidden. But they distinguish that from what they call the existential command and existential decree, which applies to God's actions and nature. The two are separate and distinct. When God wants something to be, he says, be, and it is. That command, be, is existential. God creates what he wants. They say that has nothing to do with the legislative command. When God says, do not commit fornication, do not steal, it says, help your neighbors, mm-hmm. respect your parents. Those are legislative commands. Yep. That's where morality is understood. When God decides, I'm going to create a flood, or to send down the rains, or to bring about a forest fire, or to put an end to the forest fire. These are his actions in nature. Those are existential actions, and they cannot be compared to uh, the commands that he gives to human beings. So this, again, is a false analogy. Another anti-evolution argument made by uh, the wisdom uh, paradigm is by K. Nedvi. He laments that the theory of evolution offers a peaceful life for the strong at the expense of the weak. This is, of course, interpreting more of Spencer than Darwin. This is interpreting what's called social Darwinism. But he's saying that comes, he's saying the biological theory must be false because people can derive the social theory from it. That's what he's saying. So he's basically arguing that God's wisdom demands that God would only act in his creation in a way that reflects a just political order and ideal social norms. This argument is very similar to the previous one except that it focuses on social justice rather than individual moral conduct. The other one was looking at morality on the individual level, this is looking at social justice. It assumes that God's actions must emulate a model of an ideal social order. So God would not bring about new species through a pattern in his actions that would resemble, by analogy, an unjust society. So this argument, like the previous one, assumes an analogy between our behavior, our conduct, our societies, and God's actions in nature. So again, this is another false analogy. Just like the efficiency analogy, these are all different false analogies that we have seen. So now, okay, I've gone too far. Arguments for wisdom, the pro-evolution camp, and there are pro-evolution Muslims that are out there, too, that try to force evolution through religion. And they also have their own wisdom-based arguments. And we're going to examine three of those as well. The first is mentioned by Nidol Kesun. He argues, because God is omnipotent, it does not mean that he is just going to do violations of his own laws. So I am not saying that God cannot. I am saying that God put together the laws so that things function in an orderly manner. Otherwise, what is the point of putting together laws? And then doing what one wants to do every now and again. The world is ordered and harmonious. The Quran itself emphasizes that. On the contrary, God is saying, I am omnipotent, but even I, omnipotent, put together laws by which creation proceeds. And I want you to follow laws. And I want you to be orderly. follow the order. This, of course, negates the possibility of miracles. Miracles, of course, in Sunni theology, are violations of the natural order, where God does other than what he normally does. And we have different, we've mentioned three divine action models, and each one has a slightly different interpretation of how that happens, but it's basically that. Yes?
1: No, I was just saying, that I had a a guest uh, just a few days ago who questioned the whole concept of Uh, laws in nature he's trained coming from it from philosophical point of view he says laws don't exist out there what we are doing is observing regularities and patterns in nature and they don't have this law-like uh quality such that by necessity in the future they must always behave like they did in the past he said this is a uh in a sense a man-made concept they don't actually exist out there in nature that was his argument i thought it it was rather impressive
2: it's an interesting argument, especially when you talk about the metaphysics of the laws. Of course, from a practical standpoint, science, we just assume this is the case, because we're investigating natural relationships, and we just want to know what the relationships are that we see. But once you get into the metaphysics, once a scientist wants to transgress that, they can get into a lot of trouble, I agree. Okay, so, but this is a, re- a person trying to argue from a religious side. Yeah. About the law. This is even yeah. more more problematic than even a scientist yeah. trying to do it. Uh, yeah. This is trying to say what is he saying here? He's saying that God's wisdom demands that he would never violate the norms that he places in nature. Now, this doesn't go against what uh, what you just mentioned. He's saying that God is. He's still saying the norms are God's actions. God is placing them in nature. He's saying that it's God doing it. Yeah. And if you look at what he says, he's saying I am not saying that God cannot. He's not denying the power. And this is a classic wisdom-based argument. Model argument for wisdom. I say God has the power to do it, but I'm saying his wisdom dictates he won't do it. It's not because I don't say he's incapable of doing a miracle or creating humans miraculously or creating animals miraculously without evolution. I'm saying he wouldn't do it. That's a perfectly... This is framed as a wisdom-based argument. Okay? The argument assumes... That God's norms are like human laws; mm-hmm. that God's habits are like laws, so that when God violates those habits, it means He is being unruly and constant and fickle. The argument also suggests—he's not saying this; he's just like what the argument implies through its analogy. Okay, uh, I'm not going to say he's saying this. The argument also suggests a degree of hypocrisy in demanding that people comply with God's commands, but He doesn't follow His own. Yeah. And that's the converse of what it says in the argument. On the contrary, God is saying, I am omnipotent, but I put together laws and I follow mine. So you should follow yours. Mm. So Gassum is arguing that God would not disobey his own laws. It's almost like God's laws are like a sharia for him, mm. that he is expected to follow his own sharia, just like we're supposed to follow our sharia. And it's, it's an analogy true. then. This reminds me of I've something always been in, in, sorry, in, in, in Western
1: Europe, in the post-Enlightenment period, uh, almost kind of a deist conception of God, that God would never break his own laws. He would not violate the laws of nature. Uh, and it's almost it's almost de- deistic in its concept of God, I think.
2: Yes, to the extent that God has the power to do so, I don't know if deists would give him that. I don't know enough about all the different branches of deism. Uh, he's not denying that God has a power to do, but that he would never do Mm. because his wisdom demands that he would follow his laws. Mm. So I don't know, would you say that makes a distinction here? Or would that still that I, I a don't know. I mean, of I don't think the, the argument wasn't based so
1: much on does God have the power to intervene, but it, it, he does not break his own, he doesn't violate the laws of his own nature, that he uh, restrains himself or, or prevents or it, it does not intervene, uh, in fact, in the world. And that rules out miracles. That was a very common theme in European rationalist, Latitudinarianist—that um, would be the more precise word—Latitudinarianist theology associated with Cambridge University in the 17th century, which uh, uh, was around the time of Newton. So, anyway,
2: that's by the by, but there, there well, are but was, there are Muslims but... arguing this. In, okay, there are Muslims yeah. arguing this in the 21st century. Wow, <laughs> and that's basically what's going on here. That's a wisdom-based argument, and like the anti-evolution wisdom-based arguments, it shares with them positing an analogy between God and humans, mm. and an analogy which is problematic and false. Yeah. So it's, it's different in that it's trying to prove evolution and not negate it, but it's the same in its logical structure and in its weaknesses. Another argument, pro-evolution argument, from Israr Ahmed: If the universe had really evolved and developed up to the present stage, does it not mean purpose One of the most precious products of its development was implied in it from the very onset that purpose of some sort was present at every stage of its development. At the material stage, it was entirely unconscious. At the biological stage, it was half-conscious. At the human stage, it became completely conscious and deliberate. So this is a wisdom-based argument that God's wisdom demands that he manifest his purposiveness, And every natural phenomenon without exception. Not that he has a purpose, that he manifests it in a clear and discernible manner. And evolution necessitates, according to Surah Ahmed, that every object, and event in the universe is being steered by God for a purpose. So he's saying evolution is a a manifestation of God's wisdom. He would capture every event that takes place has to be leading to the next event and has to be developing to something higher. And that is evolution to him. So this argument advocates for directed or theistic evolution. That's what he's arguing here in the book that he's written, The Process of Creation and Chronic Perspective. He's arguing for theistic evolution and giving a wisdom-based argument to uh, establish that. Evolution, according to this argument, invests purposiveness in every object and occurrence in nature, since it culminates in the human being developing on Earth and then attaining consciousness, which he goes on to say, in turn, enables the initiation of spiritual development and the final stage of purpose of evolution, which goes beyond what's in the quote. The spiritual development of the human is the next stage in evolution. So every genetic mutation, every birth and every death, every population shift is invested with purpose through evolution, with God's purpose. Now, this argument, of course, fails because it overdetermines human ability to concern God's wisdom, and it imposes a particular purpose on very disparate events and phenomena without sufficient justification, because, because we can't compare God's purposes to our own and say we can discern them in this way, in this action. God's purposes could be other than what is being assumed here. Hmm. Nevertheless, This argument is very interesting in one way, extremely interesting. It takes evolution as an idea that maximizes divine teleology. He's saying evolution is true because of divine teleology. Now, that's very interesting because a lot of people fight evolution and say evolution is false because it negates divine teleology. Because if you can explain the eye through evolutionary processes, then the eye doesn't have to have a purpose behind it. If you can explain the hand through evolution, it doesn't. It means that the purposiveness in nature no longer points to God. He says, no, the only way you can demonstrate purposiveness in nature and every single motion of every single grain of sand is through evolution. So it's very unique how he, as a human being, looks at the exact opposite perspective and says teleology is why evolution is true. Because God's wisdom would entail maximal teleology in the universe, and evolution is maximal teleology. That is his argument. So it's very, very unique and interesting in that way. doesn't make it any less false, but it's very unique. And our final pro-evolution argument, what God would and would not do, is from T.O. Shavnas in his 2005 book. He's written two different books with two different theses. This is from his his earlier book. Creation, evolution of life is the result of Allah presenting possibilities, proposals, in each arriving moment of the future to the atoms as well as the aggregates of atoms. Those lazy creatures who do not respond to the choices arriving from Allah through the messenger moments of the future remained as they are. I am proud of my pre-human ancestors' genes, he says, which chose the genes, which chose to receive and grasp Allah's guidance to help our ancestors to transform into humankind. Wow, that's quite extraordinary. Yes, it is. <laughs> and let us unpack this argument first, because it is, again, a wisdom-based argument. Mm. It's saying God's wisdom demands that he would create by manifesting an evolutionary process. Since God's wisdom dictates that he calls everything to obey his commands, that what God does is cause. He doesn't force us to believe in him. He calls us, la <laughs> There's no compulsion in religion. He takes us to natural level. This call should take place on every level then, by God's wisdom, not just on the level of prophecy. The argument assumes an analogy, again, that creation must be like revelation. Again, an analogy based on our experience as humans and our relationship to God. He's comparing God's relationship to genes, rocks, minerals, plants, trees, and animals. Yeah, indeed. Creation must be like Revelation where God calls his creatures to obey him, and they either choose to do so or choose not to do so. Evolution, according to Shabness, is where the matter of nature responds to God's call to develop in the direction that he wills for it. They can obey and evolve or disobey and stagnate. So it's like we can obey and attain salvation or disobey and attain misfortune. Uh, I, I this is a false that- analogy. Yeah, it is. I, I'm I just uh,
1: very uh, uh, uneasy about this language that um, you know genes can receive and grasp God's guidance and hear God's call. It's, it's anthropomorphizing nature to uh, an extremely high, high level, um, uh, which is just really—I don't mean to be rude, but it's almost comical. As if the whole universe is kind of you know, uh, you know, the, the prophetic paradigm is kind of universalized in, in, in this kind of way. Yes. And I'm thinking it's very odd, a uh, very odd way of putting it. Um, anyway, this is my it suggestion. Is very
2: odd, but there are people today that hold these kind of attitudes about nature, about, hmm. about universal consciousness. Hmm. Yeah. And so it's not something that people dressing it up in different language say the same thing, and it sounds nicer. Depends, I guess, on how you say it. Not that it makes it true or it's Islamically acceptable, but you know there are people that do dress this up in different language, and it comes across a little bit more um, nicely than this particular quote. But the problem here is it's a false analogy. Comparing God's creative power to an appeal. Yep. God's wisdom dictates that he leaves creation to its own volition, he said, providing nothing but guidance. In other words, it must be through God's guidance alone that he should act and direct the natural world, not by compelling. So we've seen that the pro-evolution wisdom-based arguments are as subjective as the anti-evolution wisdom-based arguments hmm. that we explored earlier. Interesting. They all compare God's actions to human actions. They suppose some kind of limitation upon God. That's something they all have in common. Whether you want to be pro-evolution or anti-evolution, these kind of arguments impose limits upon God. In light of these limitations, Evolution is either seen as being the only wise and judicious pattern for God or being something God would never use to manifest his will in the world. So, so we've seen now how Muslims understood wisdom and within the Sunni uh, schools, that they have differences. Some of those differences are very minor and... Subtle, some are much more important. Like whether you'd ever use a language, God's wisdom dictates that he would do this. For example, uh, Ibn Abu'l-Iz no, and Ibn al al he had no hesitation using that language, and Asherite would never use that language. But they had a lot more in common than they had in disagreement. And we saw how wisdom-based arguments were given four important wisdom-based arguments against evolution, and three for evolution. And we see that though they are very different arguments and very creative arguments with very different outcomes even, that they all had a structural and logical similarity and the exact same failing. They were all analogies based on applying limitations of human beings onto God. They had that in common Mm. without exception. So let's look at our summary Theology asks what God is capable of and what he actually did and what he would do. These are the three types of questions that we could look at. Wisdom arguments, of course, are the third kind. What God is capable of is, deals with God's nature and his power. And he's capable of all things. And we discussed how logical impossibilities are not even a problem. They don't, we don't see them as a limitation on God's power. What he actually did, whatever that is, is based on Scripture. If we cannot see it, then it's part of the unseen, it's based on Scripture. So the last set of questions is what he would and wouldn't do, and that's what we've been exploring. What God is capable of relates to his omnipotence and is addressed by divine action arguments. For Sunni Muslims, God is all-powerful and maximally active. What God actually did, for matters of faith, is determined by Scripture. We've already mentioned this. All Sunni theologians agree that God is wise, but they also all agree that humans cannot always grasp God's wisdom. Wisdom arguments are easily prone to subjectivity and false analogies. I believe we've seen that seven times over. (laughs) And if we include the argument against efficiency, which is not a Muslim argument, eight times over. Wisdom arguments have been made to support evolution as well as to refute it. The wisdom arguments, both pro and con, all suffer from the same failings. Wisdom arguments lend themselves to irresolvable disputation, demagoguery, and personality cults. Why? Because they require someone who can arbitrate, arbitrate that knowledge. They have to subjectively determine what is wise for other people. And you notice many uh, movements, at least in the Muslim world, whether it's the Harun Yahya movement or other movements in the Middle East or elsewhere, where wisdom-based arguments are being used are often personality cults. Mm. Why? Because of the subjectivity of these arguments. Interesting. If you're going to argue with David Jalajal about whether there was evolution before Adam or something, you're going to take out the text and say, the Qur'an says this, the Qur'an says that. What does this mean, what does that mean? You have texts, you have hermeneutical rules, and you can argue it on both sides. You can say, can we use metaphor, can we not use metaphor? Do we interpret, do we not interpret? And you can actually discuss these things on a certain level. On matters of theology, you have rational proofs as well. It's like syllogism, like the clam cosmological argument. What does it mean? How does it apply to God's uh, causality? We can discuss these things. Say your logic is faulty. Your logic is sound. This is the consequence of this argument. These are all possible. There's a discourse that can be had mm. when it comes to wisdom. Well, how do you know it's wise or not? How do you? It's so subjective. What is beauty? Like if you say the universe has to be beautiful. Well, what? Who's is, who's is definition of beauty? So often you will find it's personality cults, and and charismatic Muslim leaders who will use these kind of arguments because they can get away with them. Hmm. Because their followers follow them on the charisma, or on their faith they have in that person. And so you don't really have to examine it further although, than that.
1: Although with that, without going into uh, ad hominem points here, the, the, uh, the biography of Yahya Harun um, in recent years is uh, a, a, perhaps a, a, a salutary lesson in not following Uh, cults. I I think he's in prison at the moment, even, actually, for various crimes. Um.
2: Yes, well, that's the point I'm making. And If you look at the literature of the Harun Yahya movement, heavily, heavily inundated with these wisdom-based arguments, Mm. and that evolution is nasty, it's pro-communist, it's pro-capitalist, and things like that, you'll find all variations on the various arguments you've had. The anti-evolution, basically all four anti-evolution arguments appear in various guises in that literature. To avoid this, to avoid this, kind I'm not saying to come to a conclusion about evolution, true or false, but in our discussion as people of religion, people wanting to understand religion and science and where evolution fits into a faith, to avoid these problems, we need to move beyond dogmatic acceptance and rejection, become a tool for examining We should let this discussion become a tool for examining our ontology, what we believe about the world, to compare theological positions in schools, and to look honestly at the interface between uh, science and faith. Mm. We need to become like this. We need to be looking at the big picture. And, And we definitely need to avoid any arguments that are purely subjective, purely emotional, and which... Uh, which will only cause the problem to be compounded. These kinds of arguments, especially, will compound the problems. You can never prove them right or wrong to anybody else. If mm. someone is convinced that it's nasty or it's ugly or it's beautiful to do it this way or that way, it's very hard. How, how are you going to convince them otherwise? Mm. There'll be very little criteria for anyone to see eye to eye with anyone else. Mm. By nature, people will be talking at cross-purposes. Mm. So wisdom-based arguments have these dangers in them but they're going to muddy, they muddy the waters, they make it difficult to arrive at any kind of conclusion. And of course, they they all have more serious failings of imposing limits on God based on human limitations, which is a serious theological failing, which is more serious than anything else that I may have mentioned. And of course, I have an email address, and if people have questions, please feel free to email me. I'll do my best to answer them in a timely manner if I am capable. So. that's extremely
1: uh kind of you. Well, thank you very much indeed, David, for your uh fascinating uh presentation. Um, a real education in uh, theology uh, and theology and approaching science and God's action in the world. So thank you so much for that. And I I just I will leave in the description uh below the the paper, the academic paper upon which this presentation is based. Um the paper being Uh, presumptions about God's wisdom in Muslim arguments for and against evolution. And it's worth looking at the article for bibliography and further footnotes um, as well. So as I say, I'll leave that in the description beneath uh, the video. So thank you so much, David, for your presentation and your valuable time.
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you very much, Omi, and may God bless us all to benefit from
1: it. Inshallah, inshallah. Well, thank you very much. Until next time.